Welcome to Lung Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In the last few years, there's been a major shift in research and practice in lung cancer away from the optimization of cytotoxic chemotherapy with a new focus, as in many areas of oncology, on biologic-targeted treatment. I asked medical oncologist and lung cancer investigator Dr. Mark Sosinski and oncology nurse Ms. Ann Fish-Stiegel, who coordinates Dr. Sosinski's interdisciplinary lung cancer clinic at the University of North Carolina, to select a patient from their practice whose case typifies this new approach, and they chose a 59-year-old college professor who presented a first diagnosis in critical condition, as commented on by Ms. Fish-Stiegel. The first time I saw this patient, she was actually hospitalized and very close to intubation. Originally, you know, not really a thought when she came into the hospital that it was going to be lung cancer. Never smoker. Middle-aged, you know, 50-ish something woman. What had brought her into the hospital? Um, Just she had had a hacky little cough, she says, in retrospect, for several months, non-productive cough, but then just extreme shortness of breath. I don't believe that she had had a chest x-ray until she actually got to the hospital. And once she got that chest x-ray, it was pretty evident that either she had some sort of rip-roaring infection that no one knew, or this looked like lymphangitic spread. And indeed, it turned out to be lymphangitic spread. So she had tumor basically occupying both her lungs. From top to bottom. Lymphangitic spread has been, the analogy has been made to sort of pulmonary edema. Exactly. And that's exactly what it looked like. When you looked at her chest x-ray, it looked like either a blizzard going on. I mean, basically they were whited out. But very tiny miliary disease. I mean, her chest x-ray was quite impressive. And so what was the workup that was done when she came in? Well, first of all, was just to try to stabilize her because she was that ill. And then she got PET scans and obviously CT scan and PET scan and a biopsy. And after all was said and done, it turned out to be an adenocarcinoma, primary lung, in a never-smoking woman. She got well enough with some steroids and more conservative treatment to get out of the hospital, came into our clinic for the first time in a wheelchair, pretty much slumped over, still very, very ill. What do you recall about your discussions with her and her spouse after the diagnosis was made and while she was in the hospital? Well, the initial discussions obviously were very grim. You know, we talked a little bit about the fact that we might have some options. And I mean, this was still, even though I think that things with our targeted therapies have just blazed a new trail and things have happened so quickly, even though that's been a couple of years ago, we were still feeling a little more in the infancy stages. We didn't have as much data as we have now. So I think we spoke to her a lot more conservatively then than we probably would now in terms of this may not go well and you're quite ill and talking about the type of spread of disease that she had, that that was not curable. And I think that we painted a pretty grim picture with a tiny bit of hope. That's what I would say we painted. What was her state of mind and her spouse's state of mind? Well, she was so ill that I think, and this is just from the 20 plus years of oncology nursing, that I think really at that initial point, she didn't really care. She was so ill that I think had she just passed away, she probably would have been okay with that because that's how sick she was. Her husband, on the other hand, college professor, he was bound and determined to find an option. He was very interested in the science behind all this, very interested in clinical trials. So he was sort of the hopeful of the two. She kind of just sat there because she was so sick. And he, 
did sort of the legwork and really understanding what was going on. And he was the decision maker in those initial days. What was her life situation prior to this working? Yes, yes. I mean, she's a college professor. And what kinds of things were they doing? What was her life like? Traveling. She had grown children. A daughter had just gotten engaged. They were looking toward a wedding. You know, just a complete performance status of zero. You know, a complete normal lifestyle. Busy, 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 going, but going, going. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that she didn't pursue the cough. It wasn't productive. She didn't have fever. I think it just didn't dawn on her that it could mean something, and she just really never even went to the doctor. Now, as the team sort of looked at her situation, clearly the issue is going to be systemic therapy. Uh, no kind of surgery was going to be helpful with a tumor involving both lungs like this. How are you thinking through the options at that point, chemotherapy, biologic therapy, and what were your thoughts about putting it together into a plan? Well, I think our philosophy at UNC is always to look for the clinical trial. I mean, we're always looking for patients that are clinical trial patients. Knowing what we knew at the time in the back of our minds was always the never smoker, the woman in the adeno, because that's about as far and as much as we knew at that point about the biologics. So we were thinking in that direction. And then we had just really, she was one of the first patients that went on the CALGB never smoker trial. And in fact, the issue there was, is her performance status going to knock her off this study. And we pushed the limit a little bit. She did get better. She did respond somewhat to steroids that actually improved her enough that she was getting up and doing self-care. Now, when you talk about your first thought is about a clinical trial, it's also important, sort of an ethical point of view, to go through the options outside of a clinical trial and kind of make sure that they sort of line up. Because you wouldn't want to see a patient getting a therapy as part of a trial that didn't fit into a typical non-trial algorithm. So in this situation, you have the option of some kind of chemotherapy. A standard of care regimen. Right. You've got the option of a EGFR, TKI specifically, or Lotnib. And you've got the option, well, I guess at that time, was Bevacizumab out? That was two no, years ago. No, it really, it was just before the ASCO where we all discovered that it was going to be effective in stage four disease. Interesting. So it was in the thought process, but looking at her, you know, she was, other than performance status, a great candidate for the Never Smoker trial, which randomized to a standard therapy versus erlotinib. That's really the vein in which we spoke, that we can treat you with standard therapy. You may get some better. You may not. You have pretty advanced disease. You have a very symptomatic form of the disease. One of our goals always, no matter what, on or off trial, is to try to improve symptoms in a stage four patient. So we talked around what were the things that we could do to improve that. As I said, her husband, being very knowledgeable, did his homework on the Internet and came back and definitely wanted to be on the clinical trial. Which really kind of comes down to the fact of wanting to be on erlotinib since the trial was erlotinib alone or erlotinib with chemo. The key there was erlotinib. And that is kind of a, even a couple years ago, as you say, just the beginning of the thinking. Normally, five years ago, this patient would have got chemo, period, and a sentence. Absolutely. And now, you know, this sort of new biology that's coming into lung cancer management, this woman had the option of receiving a biologic, probably statistically, if you look at it, her being a non-smoker probably has as good or better chance of responding as chemotherapy. And I guess this trial was trying to look at whether putting the two together together was going to help. So she got randomized to erlotinib alone, correct? And what happened when she was started on the treatment? Within days, she was better. 
within weeks, her chest x-ray was completely normal. And of course, we were just super excited. You know, we were just, we could not believe the transformation in this woman. I guess that um, doesn't happen every day. In long no, cancer. no. You know, and even with these new drugs, it's not for everyone. And we've learned so much more about the biology of the tumor that we're getting there. But, you know, it was sort of a roll of the dice. I mean, like I said, all we knew was she's a woman, she's a never smoker, and she's got adeno. So at least she's got those things going for her. And I know you and Mark picked her out as a case to discuss, not so much because she's typical, because unfortunately most of the patients don't do as well as she does, but I think more that could this be the wave of the future. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about what happened. So she started to get this dramatic anti-tumor response. What about side effects? She got all of the typical side effects. In fact, interestingly, this woman has grown the longest eyelashes I have ever seen in all my life. It Long was eyelashes? Bizarre. Yes, where you have to actually trim them. I mean, her eyelashes were up to here. What about the rest of the body <laughs> she hair? Had, she got a lot of the facial hair that women sometimes get. It's soft. It's not like, you know, testosterone. It's a very soft, almost like lanugo. Interesting. How long did it take before that happened? She was on the drug a few months before they started to grow. And by the time she'd been on the drug several months, it was phenomenal. She had to cut her eyelashes like at least a couple of times a week. She had to cut her eyelashes. Yes. Wow. She had the typical acne form rash that we see. She had a wonderful attitude. She was one of those patients who was quite able to just sort of laugh at all of these side effects. But she had... Where exactly was the rash? She had face, chest, back. She even got some areas... In her antecubit spaces, she got some axillary breakout. She had pretty significant rash. I would say at one point she was teetering almost on a grade three. We did have her see dermatology at one point. She was treated by our dermatology department just to kind of get things better under control because obviously she did not want to stop the drug. You know, she was didn't. it uncomfortable? Yes, it's uncomfortable. Some of the lesions are painful. I think, you know, just the extreme dry skin, they have a lot of itching on other parts of their body that don't actually break out. Very dry scalp. So would you say she was average or worse than average? She was average to just a little bit worse than average. She certainly didn't have the worst case that I've seen, but she was a little more than average. Now, what do you normally do, if anything, to try to prevent it? And how do you manage it? And how is she managed? Well, the first thing I tell patients from the get-go, before they ever take the first pill, is that to start to moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. Using a good moisturizer seems to, it doesn't necessarily abate the lesions that break out, but it definitely lessens the scaliness and the overall dry skin effect, which I think for a lot of patients is just as uncomfortable as the unsightly rash. For the rash, just say wash those areas with a mild soap and water. One of the things that's been brought up and sort of passed down nurse to nurse is the head and shoulders phenomenon. Yeah, I got to get an update on that. <laughs> it works. Does I it mean, really? it really works. I mean, I don't know what to say other the than last it, time I talked to you, you weren't so sure. Right. You know, it doesn't work for everyone. And but what do you do? You actually take the head they, and shoulders and put it on the lesions well, directly? No. One of the reasons that we discovered that it kind of works is that patients were having all this flakiness of their scalp, and you know, not really dandruff but a lot of dry scalp that was shedding. So they started using the dandruff shampoo. Well, as it washed over the body, they tended to have less erythema. Now, I don't think necessarily that there are fewer lesions from the head and shoulders, but the erythema associated with it seems to be less. So we just started telling patients not only to wash their hair with it, but to use it sort of as a shower gel, to use it as a body wash. And it doesn't work for everyone, but it works for a lot of patients. And she has done that as well. Now, she had, I think, probably the more bothersome side effects that we really can't 
do much about are these changes in hair patterns. Women get a lot of almost like male pattern baldness. While they grow soft hair on the face, they start to lose hair in the middle of their head. And it's not like chemo-induced alopecia. The consistency of the hair changes. It gets real frizzy and dry and brittle and you know, that's hard to deal with. So we talk about good moisturizing shampoos. One of the things that I've actually evolved to are telling my patients to start flaxseed oil, which is good for you anyway, but a couple of flaxseed oil capsules two to three times a day has really helped. Other things that have helped with some pretty severe areas and lesions are to take vitamin E capsules and just puncture them and put the vitamin E oil directly onto the lesions. I did have an interesting patient who has some very strong cultural differences. And when I talked about all these oils, I guess she thought that one oil was as good as another. And so she coated her entire body in olive oil. (laughs) I was like, I don't think you really want to do that. That's not what I'm talking about with these oils. We want to stick with flaxseed or we want to stick with vitamin E, but those do really help the skin. Now, to what extent does the dermatologic and these other issues with her lotnib do you think that these just sort of get better with time? They do, and they wax and wane, and I always tell patients that. Sometimes we can do absolutely nothing, and these side effects will wax and wane. Why that is? What happened with this patient? She kind of had a consistent, I mean, how her hair. How long was a year. Wow. So she was on a year, and she had the rash the whole time? The rash came and went in degrees. She had some degree of it. I would say over the long haul, The rash improved, but the other side effects worsened. The eyelashes, eyelashes? the hair patterns, the hair growth patterns, the changes in her hair. She also got pernicia, mostly in her hands. I don't remember that she had any on her toes, but she did have some very painful pernicia in her fingers, and those came, you know, longer over time. She had some actual color changes in her skin, large areas on her arms that were just darkened skin, those kind of things that there really was nothing that we could do. Any other side effects that she got? And what other side effects? She had a little bit of diarrhea. I was going to ask you about GI toxicity with her lotnib. What do you see? I'll tell you, it's interesting. It's another sort of gamble. You know, you don't know who's going to have it and who isn't. The patients who are sort of more advanced and are on narcotics already don't seem to have the problems with the diarrhea that patients who have never been on narcotic therapy. It kind of makes sense. It does make sense. But patients who are sort of de novo and do not have pain and are not on narcotics, I think, are much more prone to have the diarrhea. How about nausea vomiting? It does not happen frequently. I say that nausea is more prevalent than actual vomiting. I have gone to telling patients to take the pill at bedtime. For one thing, it needs to be, you know, on an empty stomach. So they say one hour before, two hours after a meal. So usually a patient, unless, you know, they're a bedtime snacker, bedtime is a good time. And then those people tend to do very well during the day and not have those issues. But we had another patient who actually lost 55 pounds could not eat anything but popcorn. It was crazy. We scanned her and scanned her and scanned her, and we could not find any evidence of progression of disease, and we finally had to say it's the erlotinib. She had stable disease for a long time. She did not have a dramatic change in her disease, but she had stable disease, and then she had some shrinkage. But she just had the worst anorexia and just kind of low-grade nausea constantly from the drug. And finally, about four months into the drug, it was like flipping a light switch, and she was fine. 
She was absolutely fine. Started gaining her weight back. Still started eating. Now. Yes. You think it could have been unrelated? Something else might have been. I don't know. I mean, we finally had to say it was drug because we literally. She had an EGD. We worked her up for everything, and you know, obviously, just assuming that she had progression of disease, and we could not find any evidence. And it took her about four months to sort of get the drug in her system, and then she started tolerating it just fine. Yeah, it's so hard to determine when these things. I guess one thing is if you stop the drug and it goes away and you start it again, you know, that kind of thing. But it is a little bit difficult. Now, this woman, did she have GI problems? A little bit, but just a little bit of diarrhea. I think there was a few months of her therapy where she took one Imodium every day, sort of prophylactically. As long as she did that, she was fine. When she forgot it, she would have a little diarrhea, but really not anything that bothered her lifestyle. Now, the study that she was on was for non-smokers, which, of course, patients are more likely to respond to Erlotinib, although the smokers can respond also. But we also know that tests of the tumor, specifically EGFR mutations, fish amplification of EGFR, seemed also to be correlated. I know they do that as part of the study, but did you ever find out what that results were in her tumor? Not at that point. We honestly did not know until the story progresses. <laughs> and, and when we were trying to refer her for yet another trial that was not available at our institution, we did have to have her tumor retested. And at that point, we did know that she had the mutation. Which so she had a mutation, mutation in correct. the EGFR. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. That's, I mean, we sort of assumed that she right, did she with a dramatic a response. response. Right. So what was it like at a personal level for her to go through this experience of being you know, close to death from an advanced cancer? And she became, other than the side effects, was she essentially asymptomatic from the tumor? Yes. What was that yes. like for her and her family? I mean, she was just unbelievably grateful, you know, I I mean, and just, she also just a very solid person, you know, a very strong individual. So probably yet we did not really talk about that. But I would think that she probably is. But just a very solid, strong individual. I've really, even in her relapses, she's not been a woman to just fall apart and come unglued. She's kind of taken everything in stride, including her responses. I would say that her response to response is more of let's get back to business. Did she go back to work? Oh, yes. Yes, she did. Hmm. She did go back to work. Now, I know she was on Erlotinib for a year, and then she received bevacizumab and carbotaxol and responded. Then what? She just had a dramatic decline, a profound lower extremity weakness. And in the process of us trying to work this up, she basically became aphasic. First, it wasn't true aphasia. She just simply couldn't put a sentence together. She would try but the sentence didn't make any sense. And that was extremely alarming for her husband. I mean, they're both, you know, very intellectual people. So this was a profound change in her behavior. She was starting to get confused. She would start to the bathroom and end up at the refrigerator and just some bizarre behavior things. And so we were kind of watching this very rapid decline as we're trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, obviously with lower extremity weakness, the first thing we're looking for is cord compression. We rule that out. We look at her brain. It looks essentially stable, yet the symptoms are continuing to progress. So then we, the last thing we did was an LP and got that back that she pretty much had socked in CSF. I mean, it was pretty impressive. The number she had of a cells, lot of malignant cells. A lot of malignant cells in her CSF. And at that point, we really kind of cranked it up and started calling around the country. At the point, she's just simply too ill to travel. She has really declined back to wheelchair. And so we had a long discussion with them, and we put her on hospice. And they were okay with that. 
I think it was difficult for all of us because it happened so quickly. And I think it was also that feeling of you've done so well, we've been able to completely control your disease. And you've just had at this point now in between all this, their daughter got married. So they had gone through a wedding and had that wonderful experience and family reunions and just had had an incredible quality of life over the course of this year. It was difficult for all of us. And it was very difficult hospice discussion really difficult hospice discussion. What was it that was so difficult? I mean, because I'm sure I think it was just, patients. it is difficult, but you know, a lot of patients with lung cancer, you have a very slow decline and you've gone through all your options. I mean, more and more these days, maybe our overall numbers are not reflecting it yet, but in our individual practices, and I know because I talk to other nurses, they see the same things. I mean, we're keeping these people going for a lot longer. So they're going from chemo regimen to chemo regimen to chemo regimen. You start to see a slow decline, a little weight loss here, a little cognitive function there. It's more of a slow decline. So in this woman, we had seen basically a rise from the dead, back to normal life, just perfect quality of life. And then in a matter of weeks, she just completely went from a normal productive lifestyle to us putting her on hospice. And the feeling that we... You know, no reason with the type of disease, there was no reason to start instituting other cytotoxic regimens. We know they're not going to work in CSF disease. What about we debated brain put, radiation? Well, you know, we could have radiated her brain, but you can't radiate the CSF per se. So did you radiate the brain? No. We actually talked to her about an Omaya reservoir. They were very pragmatic, and Mark was very honest with them about what he thought the chances of that working were. With chemotherapy With chemotherapy. In. And so they did not want that. They opted not to have an Amaya reservoir placed. So, you know, we'd made these phone calls and found out that she was possibly eligible for one of Passiani's trials, but she just had gotten too sick to travel. I mean, she could not go to Boston. And the idea there was to give high doses of erlotinib less frequently to try to get a higher level into the CSF brain. Correct. And I know you know Mark well. He does not practice non-evidence-based medicine. I mean, it's just something he doesn't do. He will not go out on a limb unless someone is on a clinical trial. But after several, I mean, late night discussions, actually, Passiani had come to do a seminar at UNC. So we kind of all were always like kind of on our knees with him, like, do you think this will work? Should we try it kind of thing? It was not a normal practice for us at all to be going out on this limb. But we decided to do it. We talked with them in great length and said, you know, we can do this off study. There is absolutely, it is not proven. It is not FDA approved. We are telling you up front, we're kind of doing this because you're too sick to travel, but we think it's your only hope. They said, we want to go for it. Once again, unbelievable. I mean, we started her on the 600 milligrams every four days, and within the first two doses, her speech reversed. Within the first two weeks, she was up and walking again. It was just the most dramatic thing. It was just dramatic. So Mark added Avastin to her regimen. And then now, at this point, she actually is just on once a month Bevacizumab and Erlotinib. Still on the pulse? On the pulse dose, yes. She will stay on that. She has tolerated it extremely well. We've been doing this now for a year. She just spent two weeks in Chicago taking care of her dying mother. We had to move her Avastin treatments two weeks in a row because she was up in Chicago. 
And just the fact that she's able to do that, to go care for her parent when she was twice now, she has literally been at death's door and Erlotinib has pulled her back from the brink twice. What's been going on in her chest, the tumors in the chest? Stable. And that's so part it never got worse, actually. It was no. just that she broke through in the cerebrospinal it, no, fluid, correct. essentially, in the meninges. Right. Was the lumbar puncture repeated or the yes. imaging? And what yes. was seen? We have repeated her LP now twice, I think. The first time there was dramatic reduction in the number of cells seen, and the last LP she had showed no malignant cells. Now, again, you're doing a lumbar puncture, so does that mean that she absolutely doesn't have any circulating cells in her CSF? Who knows? But she went from a very large, bulky amount of malignant cells in her CSF to a decrease in that number of cells in the next sample, and in the third sample, we've not been able to find any. So, Does she have any neurologic impairment now? No. Wow. Speech is okay? Speech is perfectly fine. Her motor function is perfectly fine. She feels well. What's going on with her rash and the other things? It's pretty much about the same as it was before. It's never gotten worse. It's never. She's never been without it. She has really, this time, though, has not developed severe pustules. She just has sort of an erythematous macular rash pretty much on her face, areas of her arms, her chest, her back. What about the bevacizumab? How did she do with that? She has had some blood pressure issues with the bevacizumab. Normal when she started? Normal blood pressure when she started. Elevation after the first dose. We have had her, I wish I could remember exactly. Mark told me we she gave her hydrochlorothiazide. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we used probably the bottom of the line. Right. Because that's usually where we start. And we've had a few people that we've had to move up the chain. But I don't think in her we've ever had to. I don't think she's ever had anything more than hydrochlorothiazide. What other things have you seen with bevacizumab? We have had, in other patients, some dehiscence of porticath placement, hmm. wound healing issues. Now these are people who had procedures or they had them in the past? Because the thinking usually is you don't want to do a procedure within six weeks of being right. bevacizumab. Were these people who had it... Procedures? Well, or? they did. And, you know, and we've really struggled with this whole porticath insertion issue. You know, that's a difficult one because, you know, in this group of patients, you don't really feel like you have six weeks to hold treatment and wait for it to heal. So, and, you know, kind of what I'm hearing across tumor lines is I don't know that people view porticaths as, quote, a surgical procedure you can't do with Bev on board. But, but it's an incision. Yeah, I kind of wondered about that. I'm not sure if that's really been looked at. Has it been your experience? It has be been our experience, and I don't have the official report or guidelines, but I know that our porticaths are placed in vascular interventional radiology. And that group has had enough complications overall in the patients that they've put, you know, and we're talking about not just the lung patients. They're talking sure. about across the board for the Department of Oncology when they're putting in porticaths in patients that are on or receiving bevacizumab that they've had definitely an increased number of, you know, problems, dehiscence with their little wound. So they have come up with some guidelines, and I think that they will not put a porticath in in less than two weeks on either side. You know, the longer, obviously, the better on either side of a dose of BEV, but the minimum is two weeks on either side. Any sort of sense, you know, having seen patients receiving bevacizumab and chemotherapy now, I'm sure the last couple of years since it's come out, compared to what you were seeing in the past with just chemotherapy alone, do you have any feel? I mean, the numbers say it's more effective. Do you think you're seeing that clinically or you can't really tell? Oh, I think so. I definitely think so. I think that 
you know, we've added it to patients just like we're speaking about. And it's hard to say. I mean, has she had stabilization of systemic disease outside the CSF because she's had that added? I don't know. We have another patient of another very similar patient in her 30s, never smoker, who has sort of been on this roller coaster. She did not do as well initially, and she has had more cytotoxic therapy than this particular patient. But fortunately for her, this patient came before her because she also had some very, very wicked leptomeningeal disease. She started out on the same trial, and initially she did not have the big response to her lot that the previous patient that we've spoken about. She sort of had stable disease, then it grew, she came off the erlotinib altogether, went on to more cytotoxic therapy, you know, it's gotten the carboplatin paclitaxel regimen, I think she's even had gemcitabine, she's had pemetrexid, she's been down that road of multiple treatments and then developed the leptomeningeal disease and hers manifested with just extreme nausea, vomiting and headache, just extreme. And she still, although she has improved greatly, she also progressed into a lot of confusion, had some lower extremity weakness, but not as profound as the previous patient, but did have some confusion and disorientation. She got the pulse there a lot. And we pulsed her and those symptoms, she is no longer confused. Her lower extremity weakness has gotten much, much, much better, but she still is hanging on to the headache, although it's not the crippling, disabling headache that she had and her nausea and vomiting is gone. Now, this woman has now survived. It was a pretty serious situation for the last couple of years. From the beginning, what are some of the things that have been most important to her, her concerns, her wishes? I think she's a really solid individual, and I think quality of life. She has never really talked to us about how much time has, you know, I'm sure that she's had those discussions with her husband, but she really has not had those discussions with us, even In that last phase, when we put her on hospice, it was about making whatever time you have left comfortable. We didn't talk about times. She wanted to see her daughter married. She got that. She wanted to take a couple of trips. They got to do that. She wanted, you know, I think one of the most important things to her is to remain a productive human being. She did not want her husband to have to care for her when she got you know, was in a wheelchair and couldn't walk and was completely total care for him. I think that probably bothered her more than anything else, sort of being the helpless person. So the fact that she has been able to go back to doing basically whatever she wants to do, I think has been the most important thing to her. You know, a couple times during your description of what happened to her, you seem to get very emotional. Is there something different about this patient, or do you feel that way about most of your patients? No, I think I feel that way about most of our patients. I think it's just, we try to go into this completely objective, but when you see somebody have such a dramatic response to a drug, it's overwhelming. I mean, it really is overwhelming, because in the business that we do, like we said at the outset, this is not the routine. You know, I don't think I would be emotional if I saw this happen every day. Oh, okay, here, take this erlotinib and you're going to get better. I mean, even though we know a lot more, we don't know enough to be able to necessarily predict that. So it's very overwhelming when you see these patients who are wonderful people. I mean, all our patients are wonderful people. But when you see somebody who is just a very productive, intellectual, giving and caring human being who has never once complained, 
No matter how sick she has gotten, she has never complained. I have never heard her say, why me? Or, you know, like I said, she's never even fallen apart in the face of the worst news. She is calm, collected together. So when you see good things happen to those people, it's just overwhelming. It's emotional. And you're focusing on perhaps one of the, I don't know, darkest areas of oncology, frankly, lung cancer. I mean, 160,000 people die of lung cancer. How do you deal with it personally? This is my personal philosophy, and I say this out loud not only to myself, but to everyone who asked me this question. I did not cause this disease. I cannot make it go away. It is my job to make it as easy as possible for every patient that comes into our practice who passes from point A to point B and all the points along the way. And it's just as important for me to help these patients die as it is to help them live. How do you sort of leave it at the office, so to speak, or do you leave it at the office? I try to leave it at the office. I think the hardest part is when you look at your family members or I look at my own life and think, why is my life charmed? Why am I any different from them? And realize really on a day-to-day basis, just the part that I don't leave at the office is to try to be grateful, to try to be grateful with my family and my children and my life and everything that I have and to enjoy it and to just live every day to the fullest because I am not privileged. It could just as easily be me as it is one of them. This patient illustrates what we hope will be you know, the future of cancer treatment in general and specifically lung cancer in terms of being able to have targeted biologic therapy. What are some of the other supportive care issues in general that you're dealing with in the whole arena of biologic treatment? Well, I think that the long-term issues surrounding taking the drug, financial. Financial is huge in some of these patients. Now, my hat really is off to the drug companies and these pharmaceuticals because they realize how expensive their drug is. They also realize that many of the patients that deserve and need these drugs are caught in that Medicare conundrum. So they've been wonderful about giving either reduced rate drug or even, you know, in my population of rural North Carolina, I have many, many indigent patients. And these companies have been wonderful at just giving the drug to these patients. But that's a huge long-term issue to the point where, you know, our own hospital has not had these drugs on formulary because we have so many indigent that if they were having to give this away and not getting any reimbursement for it, I think the financial pieces around these, and obviously as things come off patent and things become cheaper, that issue hopefully will improve over time. But financial is a very big issue in these patients. I have another patient who has been only on this drug, gosh, probably four years now, four straight years, never had a cytotoxic, yes, never had a cytotoxic therapy. She has Never had complete resolution of disease on CT scan, but initially she had quite a bit of shrinkage, and then it's just stayed stable ever since. She has just, when you look at her, she has horrible skin. She sees a dermatologist probably every few weeks now, and it just very leathery, almost like she's had way, way too much sun over the years, extremely dry skin. She's had a lot of problems with her eyes and eyelids from dryness. She totally hates her hair. Basically, she has no hair. She's had almost complete alopecia, but what she does have is just very poor hair. But metastatic disease for four years 
Is she symptomatic from it? No. Wow. So she's walking around with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer four years later on a biologic. Of course, as you say, though, with maybe some significant dermatologic toxicity, but still alive. Right. And, I mean, she's had horrible outbreaks of rash, and then she's had just horrible, horrible dry skin. So she's kind of been on this roller coaster of side effects for four years. And it's funny because she's had periods of time, months would go by that she would have diarrhea. And then it would just go away, and then she wouldn't have it. And so there's those kind of things, like she says she's learned, to. she always travels with the modium because she never knows when this week or this month might be the time that the diarrhea comes back. Or she has the extremely long eyelashes as well, and she has to trim her eyelashes a lot, and she gets ingrown hairs in her lids a lot. And little things like that that she's gone to ophthalmologist. And so I think the dermatologic, the ophthalmology, the other supportive specialties who don't understand the side effects of these diseases. I think we're getting better at that, and our ancillary physicians are doing better at helping us to manage these side effects. But I think really the long-term and the chronicity of the side effects is probably one of the hardest things for patients to deal with. And, you know, there's a dermatologist, Dr. Mario LaCouture, I'm sure you know mm-hmm. about him, who's taken a leadership role in developing clinics specifically for patients getting these kinds of medications. You know, the cetuximab is also a exactly. huge problem in terms of skin. And his point is that with aggressive management of these symptoms, this could translate into actually a survival benefit. I mean, it may be the difference between them being on the drug or not. Right. It may be. I think just in general, in cancer in general, all of the survivorship issues are huge. And I'm sure you're probably aware. I mean, the survivorship clinics are, you know, popping up all over the country now. And we're getting centers of excellence in survivorship that are funded by the Lance Armstrong Foundation. And I think that we're all looking, I mean, in most cancers, our patients are living longer. So we're dealing with all of, here's another issue. We have a patient, another patient who's been on every single one of these treatments. You name a drug for lung cancer, she's been on it. She's a retired clerk of court. Another wonderful, wonderful woman was given the Order of the Longleaf Pine by our governor, which is the highest honor that can be bestowed on a citizen of North Carolina. I mean, this is a wonderful, wonderful lady. She's about four years out now, having gone through all of this. Well, unfortunately for her, she's had multiple brain meds. And now we are dealing with just, I call it the radiation brain mush, but it's, you know, she's having horrible dementia. I mean, she's now living almost like an Alzheimer's patient. We cannot find progression of disease. We know it's because she's had her brain radiated twice, you know, and she's got one family member who's kind of looking at us like, you know, well, why did you do this to her? And we have to shrug our shoulder. We, I keep saying to them, you know, we've never had patients live this long. We've never had to deal with these long-term side effects and what this means because these patients have not lived this long. I'm curious about your take on another potential side effects with biologic therapy. And I think of all the ones that we've encountered, this one has been one of the trickiest to deal with. And that is the threat on when patients with non-small cell receiving bevacizumab of pulmonary hemorrhage. What's your take on that? Fortunately, we have not seen that. Obviously, it always needs to be in the back of your mind. Same, you know, as perforated bowel. Those side effects, you have to talk to the patient about it. You have to watch for it. And I guess my take on it is that the longer we use these drugs 
And the longer that patients remain on these drugs, the more we're probably going to see those things and then have to figure out those side effects down the road as well. I guess from a patient education point of view, though, it's interesting because I see this in different situations in oncology, for example, cardiac issues with Herceptin, where you have a potentially serious problem. And in lung hemorrhage, we're talking about maybe even life-threatening, but yet something that's statistically very unlikely, you know, maybe 2 3 4% and the patient education implications. Now, in lung cancer, these people are usually facing, with metastatic disease, really almost imminent demise over the next year. So I don't know, does it play out as a major concern for the patients? Well, I look at these side effects, even the cetuximab that you mentioned and the whole anaphylactic arrest. I mean, I don't see this any differently than I did when I first became an oncology nurse a million years ago, and we worried about cardiac toxicity with adriamycin. Did it stop us from giving the drug? No. Did we do tests beforehand to try to get a handle on where we were beginning with cardiac function? Yes. Did we explain this to the patient? Of course we did. Same thing when you're talking about neutropenia. I mean, before the days of GCSFs, neutropenic fever could be a fatal event. Did it stop us from giving the drugs? Of course it didn't. Did we teach the patient what to do? Of course we did. So I see it as the same exact thing. I mean, none of these drugs that we deal with are toxicity-free. I mean, we've known from the day that we started our careers in oncology that we were dealing with dangerous drugs. It's why we have rules about who can write the drugs and who can calculate the drugs, and even from a nursing point of view that you have to have passed a test before you can administer the drugs. So we take these drugs very seriously, and I think that your key exactly is patient education. We know that the potential for toxicity is there, but we just have to relay that to the patient in a way that says, yes, we're aware of it. This is what we will do about it. And this is your portion of the job in helping us look for this. You too, as a patient, have responsibility in receiving these drugs. The last thing I want to talk to you about is getting back to chemotherapy. One of the things that's happening, particularly in breast cancer, is the evolution of the drug nabpaclitaxel, which I know there's been some work done on at your place. And in breast cancer, it's been kind of interesting because there's some hints that maybe it's maybe a little more effective than regular paclitaxel. You have the issue of you don't need to use premedications. The infusion time is shorter. How do you think this will play out in lung cancer? Well, I think if it's proven to be as effective or better, I think that's one of the things that we look at. It doesn't necessarily have to be a better drug, but if it's just as effective with less side effects, that's something that anyone would choose to give, I think. So I think it's just, you know, a matter of getting the data. The more drugs that we have and the more toxicity profiles that we have, the more choices we have to give to our patients.